0: I'm James Hitchcock, a professor of history at St. Louis University. I teach history of the Catholic Church among a number of other subjects. And this course of lectures is on the Second Vatican Council, the central and most important event in Catholic history in the 20th century. This first lecture is going to be the background of the council, what the situation of the church was on the eve of the council what the circumstances were under which it was summoned, what it was expected to do. Then, in subsequent lectures, we will examine what it actually did do and we'll also spend some time on the aftermath of the council and attempting to assess to what extent the council, you might say, met its expectations and to what extent perhaps it did not. Now, by most measurable criteria in the late 1950s, the Catholic Church would have to be thought to be in very good health. If we were to take the United States as an example, the church was in a flourishing state. The rate of church attendance was very high. There was an abundance of religious vocations. Catholics in America, even though they had been poor and immigrants for the most part, had succeeded in building a great parish system most parishes had a school, we had a great high school system, we had a college system. As they say, any measurable criteria, anything that lends itself to statistics, the church was in healthy state. I think also that those who had their finger on the pulse of the church at the time would have said that it was spiritually healthy as well. People were devout people were genuinely trying to live up to the teachings of the church. They were, of course, sinners. They were, of course, people who failed. They had their blind spots. But on the whole, they took their faith very seriously. And so far as they understood that faith, they tried to live it. And I think the same was true most other places in the Catholic world. The 20th century has, of course, been a great missionary age. And so at the end of the 1950s, the church was growing rapidly in Asia and Africa. It was soon ceasing to be a predominantly Western church and other parts of the world were just as important in the Catholic scheme of things. Europe, Western Europe, had of course been the traditional heart of the church, where the church, although founded in Palestine, first really took root in Europe. Now here, perhaps, the prognosis wasn't quite as good. There were Western European countries, we could mention Ireland perhaps, maybe Spain, where levels of church attendance, levels of devotion and so forth were also extremely high. But in some countries, and perhaps France was the most notable example, leaders of the church were rather worried by what they saw as measurable decline. There the rate of church attendance was lower, it seemed to be getting lower all the time, There was a sense that many of the people of France, although they remained nominally Catholic, the faith had really ceased to mean a great deal to them in their personal lives. One French bishop, for example, had actually written a pastoral letter shortly after the Second World War with the rather sensational question as its title, France, pagan? Meaning that if things keep going the way they are, France will cease to be a Christian nation and may be viewed as pagan. Now, the office of the papacy was also at a very high level in terms of prestige and authority in the late 1950s. In 1939, Pope Pius XII had been elected. He had come to the papal throne as a highly experienced Vatican diplomat. He had spent a number of years in Germany during the very troubled times. He became the papal secretary of state. He had traveled widely. No one else knew the situation of the Universal Church nearly as well as he did. And he had a relatively long reign, 19 years. And he was a man of aristocratic birth, aristocratic bearing. He was tall and austere. He was the sort of man who automatically commanded deference, respect, even perhaps a bit of awe without necessarily having to explicitly command it. It was very easy to see Pius XII as the Vicar of Christ, the most important perhaps of all the papal titles. And in those days, following a very ancient tradition, when the Pope entered St. Peter's Basilica for formal ceremonies, he was carried in a chair which was borne on the shoulders of some rather burly men as a sign of his exalted office. And he wore on these occasions what was called the Triple Crown because it had three different levels reflecting the various authorities or rules, kingdoms you might say, which the Pope could exercise. So when Pius XII died in 1958, I think that any objective assessment of the church would have said, he left it in very good hands. It was in a flourishing condition. And it had successfully weathered some rather serious storms. Somewhat to the surprise of perhaps most people, the man who was elected pope in 1958 is very different in character from Pius XII. He is Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, patriarch of Venice, who in a way, the only things that he had in common with Pius XII uh, of any real significance were that they were both Italian and that John XXIII as he became known had also spent a good part of his life in the papal diplomatic service as had Pius XII. John XXIII as he never forgot and never hesitated to remind people had been born into a peasant family in northern Italy not into an aristocratic family like his predecessor and whereas Pius XII, as we said, was tall and austere. John XXII was short and indeed quite fat. Pius XII had about him this almost intimidating air of authority. John XXIII seemed to deliberately cultivate a much more informal image. He smiled a lot, he laughed a lot, he joked with people. Many of his jokes were sort of at his own expense. He did not pretend to be an intellectual. He was, in fact, a good deal smarter and more learned than he appeared to be. But he preferred if people thought of him as the simple peasant who, by some inexplicable means, had risen high in the church. He had done parish work in the north of Italy. He had been secretary to a bishop. He had then, as I said, entered the papal diplomatic service. And he had served mostly out of Europe in places like Turkey and Bulgaria where he got to know something about Eastern Orthodoxy and about Islam and then after World War II was made the papal nuncio or ambassador to France which was a very difficult position because the French government was very upset at the fact that they said some of the French bishops had actively cooperated with the Germans during the war. So Archbishop Roncalli was sent to France to handle a very touchy situation and by everyone's agreement he handled it very well. Then he is rewarded in the normal course which successful Vatican diplomats are rewarded by being made Patriarch of Venice and then a short time later a Cardinal. And then in 1958, as I said to the surprise of many, he is elected Pope. One reason for the surprise was his age. He was then 77 years old. One of the oldest men ever to be elected pope. Elected at an age when it would ordinarily be thought no man is going to be considered for a high office. He was referred to as a result by many people as the transitional pope. That the cardinals who elected him must have known it would not be a long pontificate and they wanted him in a certain sense to be almost a caretaker of the papal office until a younger man would succeed. But if people actually did expect John Twenty-Third to be a caretaker pope, they were again very much surprised because from almost the moment of his election he becomes a very active pope and he begins to shape the public perception of the papal office in ways that no predecessor of his had done in centuries. He actually affects what is almost a revolution in the image, at least, which people have of the papal office. I talked about the fact that he liked to joke and he was very informal and many of his jokes were at his own expense. And this is a key to sort of seeing the importance of John 23rd in history because while he is lionized and celebrated and often listed as one of the great popes in the history of the church if you try to actually grab hold of what he did what did he actually do or achieve during his pontificate that would merit this, it's elusive. It sort of slips out of your grasp. This is not because of any fault of his or defect of his But it's because he was not Pope long enough. Whatever initiatives, plans, projects that he had would necessarily be carried out by someone else. But The revolution that he effected in the papacy was the revolution, as I said in its image, and the revolution then of how the public perceived the papal office. He was an enormously likable man even those who may have detested the office of the papacy could not help to warm up to the man. If Pius XII commanded respect and a certain amount of awe John XXIII inspired affection. It was to many people a sort of refreshing breeze after the austere formality of Pius XII's pontificate. After 1870, when the Italian government had seized the papal states from the pope, had incorporated them into the new state of Italy, including most of the city of Rome itself, leaving the pope with only a very small bit of territory which will later on be called Vatican City. After that in 1870, as a protest against this injustice, all subsequent popes had remained inside the Vatican. They were sometimes referred to as the prisoners of the Vatican. Their refusal to leave the Vatican taken as a sign of the fact that they had been unjustly deprived of territory which was rightfully theirs. John XXIII quite consciously breaks with this tradition. He doesn't go very far, but he goes into the city of Rome and makes visits. He goes to a few other places in Italy, and the revolutionary character of this is not lost. This attracts enormous attention. It's quite clear that John XXIII is breaking old molds, breaking old stereotypes. He's saying the era of protest, the era of withdrawal, the era of non-participation is now over. The role of the Holy Father is to go out amidst his people. It will be left, of course, to his successor, Paul VI, who will then begin to travel beyond Italy to the rest of the world, and eventually, of course, to the pontificate of John Paul II, by far the most traveled pope in the entire history of the church. So John XXIII's beginnings here are very small, but very, very significant. It's also significant where he goes. One of the first places he visited after he left the Vatican was to go into Rome and visit a jail and to spend time with the prisoners, demonstrating his great pastoral concern to go to, in a sense, the most outcast members of society, the most rejected, and to say that the church and the pope reach out to everyone. There is no member of the human race who is beyond our concern. He has a series of highly publicized meetings in the Vatican, of a kind which if they ever took place during the pontificate of Pius XII would have been very confidential, very quiet. He meets with the Archbishop of Canterbury, for example. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the leading prelate of the Church of England, the Anglican Church which broke away from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. It had been Catholic policy ever since the 16th century to say that we should not engage in cooperative efforts with other religious groups because in doing so one gives a sort of stamp of approval, sort of a stamp of legitimacy to other religious groups but now John the 23rd while in no sense implying that the religious differences have evaporated or that they aren't important says in effect well let's look beyond the doctrinal differences we have with each other and let's reach out to one another as persons and so he meets then with the Archbishop of Canterbury and they have apparently a very warm meeting and they also make it clear that they see this as a preliminary to possible more serious discussions that will take place. That maybe, just maybe, the gulf between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches is not as wide as we have hitherto thought. The premier of the Soviet Union at that time is Nikita Khrushchev himself a somewhat contradictory figure who at some points looked as though he was trying to soften or liberalize the soviet system and then at other points would crack down hard and of course christians of all kinds were persecuted in communist countries the catholic church was the great opponent of communism but the pope at one point meets with khrushchev's son-in-law now that's not exactly a high level diplomatic meeting again it's more or less on the level of informal contact. But it sends again the message of the Pope's willing to reach out to everyone to possibly see if we could go beyond barriers, beyond conflicts, to make contact with one another in a meaningful way, which we perhaps could then later build on. All of this, as I say, is in the area of image, along with the stories again of the Pope being very much at ease with visitors, exchanging jokes, not standing on ceremony. He begins to strip away a lot of the elaborate ceremony, no longer carried on a chair. He joked that this had to be stopped because of his excessive weight. His successor, Paul VI, will do away with wearing the triple crown, the great tiara, and wear only a bishop's mitre instead. A shift of emphasis from the pope as prince, the pope as ruler, the Pope as authority to the Pope as a pastoral figure, the Pope as someone who has a care of the souls of people and who his main concern is exactly that. John is elected, as I said, in 1958, and he has not been Pope for even two years. When he makes an announcement which knowledgeable people in the Catholic world find quite startling, he says that he intends to summon an ecumenical council. Most people, I think, didn't even know what an ecumenical council was. There have been many of them in the history of the church, several dozen. But between 1563, which was the end of the Council of Trent, and 1870, which was called the Vatican Council, there had been none. So for a period of over 300 years, there was no council. Then after 1870, the Vatican Council, there had not been one for almost 90 years when john the 23rd announces his intention to call one and since this new one is also going to meet in the vatican it's called the second vatican council and the first one of 1870 of course is called the first vatican council now as i say most people in the church didn't even know what a council was And those who did were quite startled, because councils had usually been summoned in the history of the church for really important and momentous reasons. Council of Trent had been called in the 16th century to determine the church's appropriate response to Protestantism, to the Protestant Reformation. Earlier councils had met to deal with questions or controversies that were racking the church and splitting it open, such as, the question in the early centuries of whether Jesus was in fact truly God in the full and complete sense of the word. The first Vatican Council in 1870 had been called in an environment where the church had been under very severe attack in a number of places and where it looked as though religious belief and especially the Catholic Church was being placed very much on the defensive. And it had its chief and most remembered achievement was to have officially declared the doctrine of papal infallibility as dogma of the Catholic Church, and to allow the pope then to claim for himself this authority which Pius XII had been so very successful in exercising. There was something rather odd about the way in which John XXIII announced the summoning of the council because it was almost a kind of throwaway line. He was making an address, and he mentioned several other projects that he had in mind, and he said, and an ecumenical council. And one of the things that a lot of people found startling and puzzling about this was such an event was really of such consequence that it should have merited a major announcement of its own with much fanfare. But for whatever reason, John XXIII chose not to do it that way. Almost immediately of course there was feverish speculation. Why is he calling this council? What is its purpose? People scratched their heads because again at most other times in the history of the church the council had been called in a time of great crisis and it had been called to resolve the crisis but the church in 1960 was not in crisis. The church in 1960 on the whole appeared to be flourishing. I think to understand what John XXIII had in mind in summoning the council, it's necessary to understand a particular key to his character and personality, which is extremely important, and that is he was a man who apparently was relentlessly optimistic and relentlessly hopeful. He had had his share of disappointments and setbacks in life. He certainly was not unacquainted with grief and disappointment and frustration but through it all he had remained fundamentally optimistic or perhaps we should rather say hopeful using a religious term with his hopefulness rooted in his faith Christ had triumphed over death and over sin and over evil and therefore Christians ought to be a joyous and hopeful people realizing that they share in Christ's own triumph In announcing his intentions for the council, John was always rather vague, or at least it seemed to many people that way. He never set forth a specific agenda, saying I want to do this, this, and this. He talked about unity as one of the things that he hoped for, and people understood what he meant by unity as a reaching out to other groups beyond the Catholic Church. And he also talks sometimes about a new Pentecost, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it seems to me that what he had in mind was that a council, if it properly did its work, could be the occasion for an enormous flourishing, an enormous explosion of faith, apostolic work, zeal, and so forth within the Catholic Church a great revival, if you will, a great spiritual revival. So whereas previous popes had often been motivated by pessimism when they summoned councils, we've got problems, we need to take care of those problems. John XXIII seems to me to have been motivated by optimism. The time is ripe, maybe we are standing on the threshold of a tremendous new spring. Perhaps he too looked around the church at the time and assessed it in those very positive terms, which I was talking about at the beginning, and perhaps thought to himself, the church is very healthy, it's as healthy as it has been for many, many centuries. Perhaps the Lord has prepared us now for the opportunity of moving to the next higher level. He never actually confided to anyone, as far as anyone knows his exact intentions for the council. The Second Vatican Council is referred to as an ecumenical council, and even many people who don't know much else about it or about the Catholic Church will refer to the ecumenical council. And that has led to the misunderstanding that it was called primarily for the purpose of what we call ecumenism or ecumenical relations and that is to improve our relationships with non-Catholics. That isn't actually what the term means in the context of the Second Vatican Council. All the general councils of the church are called ecumenical councils. The word ecumenical is a synonym for general. It means a council of the entire church, not just of a particular region, so it's not an Italian council or a Spanish council, but it's a council of the entire church. The Greek word ekomenoi meaning the world, and hence a worldwide council is what they mean when they call it an ecumenical council. On the other hand, one of its more significant actions, one of its most important long-term results was precisely in the area of ecumenism in the more familiar sense, that is to say ecumenism as the relationship between Catholics and non-Catholics. Well once it became clear that the Pope was quite serious about having this council, and once people began to understand the enormous possibilities here, the atmosphere in a way became really quite feverish, with innumerable agendas being advanced from every conceivable point of view as to what the council should or should not do. Everybody caught on to the word renewal. The council is supposed to renew the faith of the church. Well, what constitutes renewal? How will we recognize it when we see it? So we have intense discussion from about 1960 on. When the council meets in 1962, there have been at least two years of feverish public discussion in Catholic circles about this. There has also been, naturally, a good deal of activity going on behind the scenes. The Papal Curia, which is the Pope's highest ranking advisors and assistants. So there's a Secretary of State, there's someone in charge of liturgy, there's someone in charge of doctrine, there's someone in charge of missions, and so on and so on. This Papal Curia was known to have been surprised by John XXIII's announcement and to have perhaps not been altogether pleased, thinking of it as a rather rash act that the Pope hadn't accurately thought through. It's claimed, whether or not accurately, that the Curia really didn't see the need of a council. They thought that the church was being quite adequately governed by the Pope with their own assistance. They saw the summoning of a council as, in a way, undermining their own authority. But John 23rd serenely did not acknowledge any significant criticisms, all the reasons why he shouldn't call a council, why it was a mistake, and he went steadily ahead with the plans. So there was then a kind of behind-the-scenes struggle over who was going to shape the council, who would actually set the agenda, who would be the people who would prepare the way. Well, the Papal Curia necessarily, inevitably, played a major role in this. But for each important area of activity where the council would meet, there were commissions set up and bishops from other parts of the world, not just from Rome, were appointed to serve on these commissions. And so the preparatory commissions, as they were called, represented a cross-section of opinion and a geographical cross-section of the church and in that sense could be called a fulfillment or an expression of the real meaning here of the word ecumenical, worldwide. Alongside the preparations for the council, and of course it was part of this intense discussion that I've talked about as to what the council ought to do, alongside that there was a considerable amount of ferment going on in the church just in general. John XXIII liked to talk about opening windows. And the image was that perhaps the church had kept its windows and doors closed for too long and that the air inside had gotten rather stuffy and that the church perhaps had ceased to be in contact with interesting and hopeful developments which were taking place on the outside. And so by opening the windows, we let in some fresh air and we'll also be able to look out and see what's going on out in the great big world. I don't know to what extent John Twenty-third fully intended the connotations of that, but this is what was generally understood from his image of opening windows. He also made use of an Italian word, aggiornamento, which could probably be best translated as updating comes from the same word from which our word age comes from to bring something into conformity with the age. The church needs updating and he used that word and there was the perhaps more familiar word renewal. So there were various words circulating around at that time and whichever one you preferred and however you understood it, there was once again what I would describe as almost a feverish atmosphere of expectation, of excitement, that we are on the edge of something extremely important for the church and for the world and what a great time it is to be alive to be able to see this. So things of great importance were taking place that were not strictly speaking a part of the conciliar agenda itself. One of them was exactly ecumenism as I have described it in the more restricted sense of relations with non-Catholics. There was a Jesuit Cardinal, Agostino Bea, who was put in charge of a new Vatican agency called the Office for Christian Unity. Now the very title of the office was itself rather startling. The Catholic Church had made it clear ever since the Protestant Reformation that, yes, Christ intended that all should be one. Christ intended that the church should be one. But this can only occur by those who have left the Catholic Church, who have separated themselves from the Catholic Church, returning to the one true fold. And that did not appear to be a realistic expectation in the foreseeable future. So for the Vatican to talk openly about Christian unity itself seemed to represent a striking change. And to set up an official office in the Vatican for that purpose and to appoint an important, influential Roman cardinal to head that office, all of this is really quite striking. Part of it, again, is in the realm of personality, mood, spirit. Cardinal Bayard, like Pope John XXIII, was a warm individual, and he made Protestants and others feel at ease, made them feel welcome, made them feel as though he had a genuine interest in them. He was theologically knowledgeable. He understood important theological issues and what the differences were between Catholics and Protestants. And it was soon understood that this ecumenical initiative, which the church was committing itself to, was a significant departure from the previous policy, in that Cardinal Beaul on the one hand was not saying admit your errors and get back in the Catholic church as fast as possible or we have nothing to talk about, nor on the other hand was he a starry-eyed dreamer who thought that somehow or other differences were going to melt away that what he did say however was let us begin the process of dialogue let us begin talking to one another all we really want to do at this point is to talk to one another in order to do that we have to be respectful of one another and we have to really listen to one another we cannot come with preconceived stereotypes you have to really listen to what other people are saying. You have to listen to it sympathetically, which doesn't mean that you accept it necessarily. It doesn't mean that you abandon your own principles and accept and adopt other people's, but it means that you don't come with a prejudice. You don't come absolutely closed-minded so that you cannot see that there may be some truth in the other man's position. Well, this ecumenical endeavor under the Pope's sponsorship with the very prominent figure of Cardinal Baal, in a way it is kind of a model for what is going on elsewhere in the church. When I say that you have to understand the pontificate of John XXIII almost more in terms of mood, spirit, attitude, less in terms of concrete events or concrete achievements this does make it elusive, that does make it a little bit hard for those who didn't live through it to understand its importance, but one of the moods that was being generated here was a mood of what we might call relaxation. Not necessarily in a bad sense. The Pope himself had a kind of a relaxed style, as we've mentioned before. He liked to be informal, he liked to be simple, he liked to stress his peasant origins he didn't want to maintain a distance between himself and the rest of the church. He was this ingrained optimist, a man who believed that we were on the edge of a great revival, a man who could see the good in everything and who thought that the good that existed in everything could overcome the bad. The Catholic Church on the eve of the Second Vatican Council was highly organized and it had a very strong and very detailed sense of its own identity. By that I mean first of all that its governing structure was very clear. Everybody understood the hierarchy of the church which went from lay people to priests or bishops up to the pope. Everybody knew that there were all sorts of laws and rules in the church so that if you had any questions about what was the appropriate standard of behavior for a Catholic in a given situation. If you consulted a knowledgeable priest, he would be able to tell you because the church had probably prescribed for that at some point. There was a healthy sense of sin, of evil, of the snares of the world, and of the need for serious Catholics, therefore, to guard and protect against these snares. People were taught to be very conscious of their sins, to be very conscious of temptation, to go to confession frequently to do penance. And they were very strongly warned against situations, might be a book, it might be something else that could be conducive to sin. The more involved you were in the life of the church, the more your life was organized according to rules of one sort or another priests, nuns, monks, and so forth whose lives were closely regulated according to very strict rules. If John the Twenty-Third was a relentlessly sunny optimist, much of this legacy of the Council of Trent, which is really what it was coming down from the 16th century, proceeded from a somewhat different view, which was a rather pessimistic view of the world. A sense that things will not turn out right unless we make serious efforts to make sure that they do, that we have got to guard against negative things which constantly threaten us, that human beings themselves are combinations of good and evil and while we are capable of doing good we are also very prone to evil and we have therefore got to surround ourselves with protections against evil from the outside and against the evil which exists within ourselves. Well John Twenty-Third certainly did not deny the existence of sin. If you look at the major written work which he left behind which was called the Journal of the Soul, he had been keeping this journal since the time he was approximately a high school student and it's a very fascinating study of his spiritual development over many years you see in there that much of the conventional Catholic piety of the 20th century was very much a part of him. He too talked about the snares of temptation, the snares of the world, the need for self-discipline, rigorous examination of his own conscience every night to determine where he may have failed during the day, and so forth. He was not an intellectual. He was not interested in speculative theology and philosophy. He wasn't chafing under what he saw as an overly rigid or old fashioned theological tradition. But he was, again by disposition, an optimistic man, a hopeful man. And it's not just a mood, it's not just the quirk of personality, but it is rooted in his faith, in the very simplicity of his faith. That if you want to exaggerate and oversimplify and say that it's a simple peasant's faith, it is this very simplicity which leads him to come to the world in an open-hearted, open-minded, <clears throat> open-armed way. Now, this in itself is, in the experience of many people living at that time, rather revolutionary. In order to understand it, I think you would have to compare it, uh, try to imagine it in terms of the behavior of the father of a family and suppose that you have the father of a family who is rather austere, rather tough. The kids are a little bit afraid to talk to him for fear he'll get angry. He's got strict rules that he expects everybody to obey. They know that he loves them and he does what is good for them but it's a very tight ship. Maybe he was a military officer before he got married. Then he changes his style and he suddenly becomes warm and laughing, and he says, well, we don't have to rely so much on rules around here anymore because I know all of you are going to do the right thing. And maybe he pokes fun of his previous image of a disciplinarian. Well, this will be experienced by the children as, in a way, almost a revolutionary thing. It will be the releasing of emotions, of release and joy and exaltation. The father will say, look, nothing is changing. I haven't changed my moral values, I still believe the same things right and wrong that I did before, I still expect the same standards of behavior from you, it's just that I know you will now do voluntarily what maybe you did previously because of the rules or because you were afraid. As far as I can tell, this is more or less what John XXIII believed and that this is one of the things that he hoped to achieve. I don't know that the phrase uptight was in use at that time, but it would be almost as though he would say, let's stop being so uptight, let's be looser, more relaxed, let's be more trusting, let's be warmer towards one another, towards Protestants, towards everybody. And the result will be not a lax church, not a church which has forgotten its duties, but it will be in fact a new spring, a new Pentecost, a new flowering of devotion and piety. All this time as well, John the 23rd is establishing himself as a prophetic figure on the international scene in terms of what can be broadly called social justice. He publishes an encyclical called Pacem in Terris, Peace on Earth, which is a discussion of the worldwide need for peace, bringing an end to conflict, the dream that the age-long wars between nations, conflicts between nations can be ended that nations will learn to live together in peace even as individuals do. And in many respects, one might say that this document, Pacem Terrace, was very general in nature. It didn't have any startling or profound insights, perhaps. But it was of such a nature, and John XXIII was such a man, that it was taken very seriously on the international scene. And the very unusual experience that Catholics had of seeing their pope discussed in the secular press and being treated as an important figure who has very important things to say about the world. Then he also issued another encyclical letter Mater et Magistra, Mother and Teacher, which was about social justice in economic terms, more or less within the framework of a given country. Building on previous Papal documents which go back as far as 1891, He talks about the fact that there is such a thing as justice, that you cannot simply say that it's okay to do something because it's profitable, that there is such a thing as a just wage, the laborer must be paid a just wage, that the economy itself must be governed by a higher moral law, the economy is not independent, and calls attention to the fact that in the contemporary world there are numerous violations of this. And so not only is John 23rd achieving a status and a recognition on the international scene, but he's also being seen as a prophetic figure whose words are worth listening to within each country itself. The era of John XXIII's papacy is also in a very optimistic period within secular society. It's a remarkable coincidence of history that the first Catholic president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, is elected in 1960 midway in the pontificate of John XXIII. So we have here a Pope, John XXIII, more admired and even adulated by the non-Catholic world than any Pope previously in history. People who have, as a result of John XXIII, overcome many of their suspicions about the Catholic Church and are now looking on it with a new respect and warmth. And this is, among other things, reflected in the willingness of the country to elect a Catholic president, something that it had been unwilling to do before, even though there was still a good deal of anti-Catholic prejudice in 1960. So there is again, in terms of this euphoria, a feeling among Catholics that the world is being transformed. Catholics look to John F. Kennedy as a man who perhaps, some people thought, was going to apply Catholic social teaching to the transformation of society. Maybe he would draw upon the principles of moderate magistra for example. now There were problems with this because John F. Kennedy had said during the election that he would not allow his religion to influence his political behavior. But Catholics were somewhat disinclined to listen to his exact words there and to simply see him as one of theirs and as a part of this great new spring that was occurring, this great new revival that was taking place and President Kennedy himself was nothing if not intensely optimistic. We have social problems of all kinds but we do know how to solve them. The only thing that's lacking is will. The trouble in this country Kennedy would say is that we've sort of slumbered for 10 years and haven't paid much attention. We've got to get this country moving again and he would bring all these bright young men to Washington with bright ideas and inaugurate all these government programs that were being funded to the tune of billions of dollars and within a relatively short time, Kennedy thought, we are going to solve the social problems of the United States. And a lot of other people thought that, too. And it went along very much, in certain respects, with the great religious hopefulness, the great religious optimism of John Twenty-Third, and even the possibility, as I've said, of linking the two together and seeing them, perhaps, as almost mutual causes of one another. John Twenty-Third would sometimes refer to people who were more pessimistic than he as doomsayers. And he had some of those people in his curia. The Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani, who was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He was charged with maintaining orthodoxy in the church, was one example, who saw the potential for negative results in everything that the Pope saw as essentially positive. But the Pope would sort of chuckle and refer to the doomsayers, and to suggest that a good Catholic who possesses faith would necessarily be hopeful. We have triumphed over evil, Christ triumphed over death. We are part of that same victory, and now what we need to do is celebrate it and implement it. So into the year 1962, they are preparing for the meeting of this council. Several years of intense preparation have gone on. There is intense expectation. There are, as I've said, a variety of agendas which various people have articulated. Tragically, John Twenty-Third will not live to see much of the council. He will live to see the first session, but then he will die in the summer of 1963 but he will have set in motion the event, which will certainly be seen as the great Catholic event of the 20th century. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.